It's no secret that over the years, streams of Christian religiosity have presented the faith as an escape from the problems of the world, which seems at odds with the experiences of people of faith. The fact is, no creature can escape the circumstances and accidents of life. Even those who endeavor to follow a God of love and justice cannot avoid tragedy or suffering. As Stanley Cavell, the late mentor of today's special guest, once said, death so caused may be mysterious, but what bounds these lives is clear enough. The capacity to love, the strength to found a life upon a love. Friends, we are still emerging from a fantastically strange year seeped in tragedy and violence, cognitive dissonance, as well as sacrifice and beauty. Our faith holds these tensions as Easter flows into Pentecost, and we move forward into that much-anticipated new and different normal. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the New Way podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. What Christianity offers us, or even implores us towards, is a view of the world sophisticated enough for the world. Some forms of Christianity are so anemic, and their pictures of Christian faith so thin, that as soon as something challenging comes on the horizon, we give it up, we surrender it, as if God is thin or anemic. Today, my interview with noted ethicist and theologian, Jonathan Tran who is the Associate Professor of Philosophical Theology and Chair of Religion at Baylor University. What indeed is a view of the world sophisticated enough for the world? In the first of our two-part conversation, Jonathan and I reflect together on the habits and rituals of faith, the exploration of identity and belonging, and the courage it takes to put oneself out in the world in the first place. As a heads up before we jump in, Jonathan shares some intense personal experiences in the first 11 minutes of this episode, including the death of a young sibling, personal experiences of racism and racial epithets as a child, and his family's experience of pregnancy loss. Jonathan Tran, it's such an honor to have you here on this podcast. I'm just really grateful for this time and this conversation together. Thank you, Sarah, for having me on. I'm excited to be with y'all. Can you tell me a little bit about some significant events in your early life that had a profound influence on you? Yeah, it's a great question, Sarah. So I grew up outside the church. My family came to America in 1975. The Vietnam War had just ended. The U.S. government, in trying to come to terms with what it did during the war, signed a bill that allowed 10,000 Vietnamese to come to America. Within a few weeks, about 140,000 came, and this is just the beginning of what took place over the next decade to be hundreds of thousands. So our family was adopted by a major denomination. The U.S. government was trying to figure out how to get all these immigrants settled into the country, and so they partnered with the major denominations, including the Presbyterians. So our family coming from Vietnam had some interaction with the church, namely the Roman Catholic Church, which had a significant influence through France colonizing the country. But we didn't have much background in this. So when we got to America, it was the Lutherans and a very specific Lutheran church in Southern California that adopted us. And I don't remember anything about the church other than the services seemed to go on forever, that everyone in front of me had white slash bluish hair, and that I used to write little things on the back of the tithing cards. Oh, yeah. Other than that, it was, you know, it was very little experience. I do remember one very significant thing about the church. 
So my first memory in life was my brother and I, uh, David, who was six years old at the time, I was five, we were crossing the street and a car came and hit David and he was killed in a car accident right in front of me. This is the first memory of my life. But the Lutheran Church played a significant role in putting its arms around my family and specifically my mom. I often ask her about what it could possibly be like to lose your child, especially just a couple of years in arriving in another country. And she speaks very favorably about how the church came around her. I didn't know much about the church before that, but I did know that. And that proved very significant. Mm. The next many years of my life were... Um, you know, involved in kind of moving around a lot. Our family dealt a lot with poverty, which meant moving 14 times before I got to high school. And these were years of trying to figure out who in the world I was in a time where racism was pretty, not only accepted, it was largely expected. Walking down the streets, being called names, chink, jap, gook, what have you. That was just a common occurrence. God didn't figure really at all during these years. I will tell you, made my first recollection of the idea of God. And, you know, I was actually a believer for maybe some weeks. In middle school, our class read the Iliad. Hmm. And it talks, of course, a lot about gods. I had not had any exposure to God or the ideas of religion. But I actually thought Zeus was God for a few weeks. At least that's how the Iliad talked about it. And so... I thought about the world in terms of Zeus, which, you know, is a really odd way of thinking about the world. Maybe no less odd than thinking about the world in terms of Jesus. But, you know, there you have it. Yeah, precisely. I mean, that's that's there's a lot that I'm really impacted by in what you just shared, especially in particular the tragic passing of your brother. I didn't know if you wanted to share any more about that or where you go from there from that moment as a child. It's taken years to figure it out, that set of questions. Yeah. I mean, to have that happen, but to have it happen so early in one's life and then one's life in a new country, mm-hmm. defining moment doesn't quite get at it. Yeah. Growing up, there was the sense of a kind of estrangement to the world that comes partly from being a refugee and a war refugee at that, but at losing probably the closest person to me. Mm-hmm. You know, he was six years old, I was five, we were brothers. In the midst of moving and immigration and all the struggles of poverty, I'm guessing that we were the closest uh, we had to one another in terms of friendship and identity and belonging in the world. So that was taken and you try to figure out who in the world you are or what the world is or what you know, it means to have a family or to be in place in the world. Uh, these, I imagine, were impossible questions. We or I did what kids do. We figured it out. We put one foot in front of the other. I guess one, if you could call it a benefit of having that be your first experience that you remember, is it's not clear you remember anything else or you expect anything else out of life. Mm-hmm. I remember in the moments after he was hit, and I'm pretty sure he was pronounced dead at the scene, One of the things I remember was running through the house, mimicking the police sirens. Mm. I'm sure there were many police and ambulance and fire trucks and this kind of thing. At least those are some of the images I remember. And I remember running around the house mimicking the sounds. And you think, well, how does a human being play Mm. in the context of trauma like that? My guess is I didn't know any different. That's what life was. And I think that characterizes the life of 
not just refugees, but war refugees. Yeah. I don't know if you've had the chance to read Vitton Nguyen's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Sympathizer, but it's a really interesting spy novel about a triple agent. But in the beginning, say 100 pages of the book, he really gets into what it was like to be in Vietnam at the end of the war. People were literally selling their children to get access to America. And my family was thrown into all of that. And so I try to think, well, what was it like to kind of both come out of that and then get to America and then see your brother killed in front of you? You make do. Mm -hmm. You don't know anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't expect anything else. So I'm thinking that growing up in the shadow of that, then God is part of that making do or not making do. God registers or God doesn't. Yeah. One thing that I find that's really different for me than, say, a lot of my Christian friends is that if you grow up in Christianity, for the most part, of course, there's some exceptions, but for the most part, your default position is God. Yeah. You think God exists in the world. Now, you may have questions about the status of that existence, what it means, what it benefits, what it costs. But if you grow up outside of Christianity, outside of really any religion, then the default position is no God, that you make sense of the world in terms of the world on its own terms. It's just pure material reality. And I notice, you know, I've been a Christian now several decades. It's still the default position not to believe. It's still a matter of coming to recognize or believe that you believe or recognize or be surprised that you believe. At least that's what the experience has been like for me. Mm. Do you recall moments where you've looked back in the last several decades and found that you caught yourself in the experience of belief, however you might define that. And you're like, I leaned into that versus I leaned into the default experience of not believing. I mean, sometimes when I read scripture, when I'm in worship, most specifically when I hear stories of extraordinary human beings um, who do this or that in the name of Jesus or live into the promise or demands of what Christianity claims about the church, I think to myself, wow, God does exist. I'm not sure I'm claiming that in terms of a kind of warranted belief. It's just the surprise that maybe that's the reality of things. Mm -hmm. But the converse is true, too. Let me offer another story. So we have two kids, Talia and David. They're now 17 and 14. And, you know, they're the loves of my life, along with my spouse, Carrie. We wanted to have like four kids. I wanted to have like 10, but, you know, we were somewhere settled around four or five Well, after our second, we tried repeatedly to get pregnant, and then we had a number of miscarriages, each more traumatic and brutal than the previous. The last one, we had reached 20 weeks, which, you know, most people think you've got to a safe point. At least that's what our doctor told us. And so she said, you know, I think you guys can relax. We'll continue to have weekly checkups, but I think we're looking pretty good. Well, sometime after that, we went in for what we thought would be a routine checkup. We actually brought the kids because we thought we were doing so well. And usually at 20 weeks, the doctor can hear the uh, baby's heartbeat very quickly after bringing the mic next to the stomach. But she couldn't hear anything. And so she started looking around. We knew we were in trouble when she called in another doctor. And then she then said, guys, I think we're in trouble. I remember at that moment, I could almost hear a click. Like, it wasn't sadness. 
It certainly wasn't anger. My lack of belief wasn't capable of those kinds of responses. It was simply, of course, this makes sense. Carries of a certain age. Your body can only produce so many things at a certain age. So the default position was not belief. And that went on for maybe a couple years where I wasn't quite sure what it meant to say I believe in God or to say I was a Christian. One of the most important things during that time, I was listening to some podcast of a former recording of Eli Wiesel, who wrote the book Night, um, which is about the Holocaust or more specifically about Jewish faith in light of the Holocaust. Wiesel's famous for having come to the belief that God doesn't exist because of the horrors of the Holocaust. Well, in this recording, his interviewer asked him, so after you stopped believing in God, what did you do? And he said, well, I continue to pray and go to the synagogue and worship God. And the interviewer said, hold on, I thought you said you didn't believe in God. He said, I didn't. But that's what Jewish people do. We pray and we worship and we go to the synagogue. To me, this is a profoundly personal and profoundly philosophical belief that the nature of faith isn't that you always have some cognitive state of mind, mental state where God exists. Mm -hmm. It's a way of operating in the world that continues even when the evidence doesn't always yield to the conclusions you want. Mm -hmm. In my case, the practices of the church over decades have been ingrained in me enough that you pray, you, know, you read scripture, you go to church, you worship. It's not always the case that God is there or you feel God being there. I think I realized during that time that's part of what faith looks like. Those are profound examples, acknowledging we live in a world where literally at our fingertips we can react to everything. We can choose yes or no or like or unlike or to comment or to stand on one side of an issue to remove ourselves from a particular perspective or allegiance to a certain group um, or identity. And practically speaking, that becomes kind of what we do as human beings for three hours plus a day to stand aside and say that an authentic human experience based on what has occurred in my lifetime as it's unfolded demands more that I don't have this binary allegiance to thoughts about God, experience of God, consistent experience of a certain way to describe what we believe and what we don't believe. To me, in many ways, squares with some stories in the text, in the recorded unfolding of Easter and scripture as well. I don't mean to equate any of these stories to what you shared about the loss that you and your family had experienced, that I've seen children who might deal with grief in the form of play, or that in some ways it's a miracle that our bodies can unfold in this making do out of what we can make do out of and moving forward in a very tactile, tangible way. I'm just struck by the image of you running through the house with the sirens and your voice and living forward out of that experience of the loss of your beloved brother. Yeah, running around the house playing at fire trucks and ambulances is probably equivalent to leading religious communities and writing theology after I stopped believing in God. Mm. It's what human creatures do. Mm -hmm. It's the kinds of commitments our ways of speaking commit us to. 
you know, there's two great intellectual influences in my life. I call them the two Stanleys. <laughs> Stanley Hauerwas, who is one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, and my mentor in my dissertation at Duke University, and Stanley Cavell, who taught for his lifetime at Harvard University. And what Hauerwas showed us, I think, is that whatever God means, it's going to look something like what the church is and isn't. What Cavell showed me, say my other Stanley, was that the very communities that story our lives and give us a place of belonging in the world also estrange us from it. It's the nature of language that both entwines us in the world and alienates us from it. This is an inevitable reality for human creatures who are, above all else, animals who speak language. And so I love any kind of scripture that gives me footing in the world. Mm. So I appreciate the analogies you offer. What those stories do for me is tell me how I belong as quickly as they tell me the ways in which I don't belong. Mm. And I think what we need in Christianity or what Christianity offers us or even implores us towards is a view of the world sophisticated enough for the world. That's why some forms of Christianity are so anemic and their pictures of Christian faith so thin that as soon as something challenging comes on the horizon, we give it up, we surrender it, as if God is thin or anemic like that. Rather, I want to think about the life of faith as the ongoing journey to make sense of one's claims in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, as Cavell says, knowing oneself is the courage of putting oneself out in the world. I think that's kind of what he's getting at. Does an example come to your mind with Stanley Cavell's description that the places where we find ourselves in community are also the places where communal praxis can isolate us? For someone who goes to church, let's say, and says, I'm a Christian, this is my community, this is the church I belong to, this is where I find myself in, quote, regular times, end quote, on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. How might they experience both ends of that spectrum? Yeah, sometimes when I go to church, you're there, people are praying, people's eyes are closed, sometimes their hands are lifted up, you know, they're in worship. And I find those to be meaningful in both of the ways you talked about. On the one hand, it's gripping. It pulls me in. It makes me party to a group of people Jesus likens to his own very body, right? So we're the body of Christ gathered around the one given body of Christ. And so in those moments, you're part of a whole much greater than yourself. And to belong there is one of the most splendid amazing, extraordinary experiences I think I've ever experienced. And this is what we do, say, every Sunday, or we try to do. The other part is recognizing I'm with people who are like that, but my experience is so far different from theirs. That whatever is going on, quote, inside them, that's not what's going on, quote, inside me. Mm. And so the claim of togetherness that we're given to this one body also estranges you. You realize you're so different. You think differently. You feel differently. You don't feel the raptured sense of being drawn into God, even though you're supposed to. And it's the claim of the supposed to that leads to the estrangement, right? It's the sense that, well, I am a faithful Christian, or I'm trying to be, and yet why do I feel so distant from God, distant from my brothers or sisters? 
these are experiences that are common in the church's history. Of course, we know that this was the experience that Mother Teresa had over the last few decades of her life. You, know, you would think that if there's anyone that feels close to God, it would be someone with that kind of life. Uh, she described in her memoirs being very distant for God for decades, no matter her faithfulness and no matter the counsel from mentors. She learned a lot from St. John of the Cross, an earlier Christian who said faith is on the one hand, the baby food stuff, right? When you're young and you rely on signs and feelings and in moments of enrapturement. But the dark night of the soul is where the mature Christian comes to the reality that faith continues in the absence of those things. Mm. And the desire for those signs itself is an expression often of our immaturity, our failure to recognize that God draws us deeper into God's life precisely by not supplying the things that we think we need. These are moments of extraordinary struggle but I think in the larger picture of Christianity, deep peace. In other words, I can be in a group of other Christians and know, or at least sense that I'm not feeling the same thing and be okay with that. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things I've learned over decades of trying to follow Jesus. Yeah. I find great comfort personally in the Catholicity of the church. And there are so many varied expressions that Growing up as a Presbyterian, lifelong Presbyterian, we would tend to minimize. I didn't have a strong understanding of other Presbyterian churches, let alone other Presbyterian faiths and traditions. Now, I find there's so much holding space in knowing Christians of various expressions and circumstances at any given moment simultaneously around the world. I don't know if the term is kinship or an experience of being seen or an experience of being held in some way through the spirit, through the spirit's work. But I find the more I've relied on one particular church to feel that synergy, the more dissatisfied and alienated I feel, just the judgment constant in my mind that I experience in those moments of worship or the expressions of worship that are not authentic for me in that given moment or feel contrived in some way just by nature of whatever had happened to any of us within the world in that given week or day. Yeah, when I first became a Christian, so I became a Christian in my first years of university life through a kind of well-known college ministry. This group of people had a very high bar for Christian faith. So if, if say, the standard evangelical thing in America is, say, one's personal relationship with Jesus, unconnected from the material realities of the world, this wasn't it. I never had the luxury of some kind of easy Christianity. I became Christian in a way in which it was pretty clear that if you're going to be Christian, you put your big boy pants on, big girl pants on, because it was going to be a challenge. Now, the benefit to this picture of Christianity is it had a very powerful account of Christian discipleship, but it was powerful in the way that it was also narrow. It was saying to be a Christian is to do X. And X was some pretty amazing things, right? Giving up your money to follow Jesus, serving the poor, high forms of communal accountability, big commitments to social justice, et cetera, et cetera. After doing that, though, for nine years, I did that as a student, and then I was on staff with this college ministry. So, you know, I was fully committed. After doing that for nine years, I felt really exhausted. 
And so I stepped away and I did what Christians do whenever they don't know what in the world to do with their lives. They go to seminary. (laughs) What I discovered in seminary was that most of Christianity wasn't like the experience I had. And I could go, you'd say, one of two ways. I could decide the rest of Christianity wasn't really Christian. That's probably what I would have said in those nine years. Or I could realize God was even bigger than my relatively big experience with, say, radical discipleship. Fortunately, I chose the latter. And what I realize is that God is significantly bigger than every t- attempt, even our most faithful attempts to follow Jesus. So this is radically expanding, also challenging to take up the bigger pictures that you just talked about. Part two with Jonathan is coming your way next week. In the meantime, you can check out some of Jonathan's writings on ChristianCentury.org and be on the lookout for his groundbreaking book, Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism, published by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Be sure to click subscribe wherever you found this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Our growing community streams from Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, and online at newchurchnewway.org. Our producer is the fabulous Marthame Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time.